Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Duncan McCargo, Director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, a Professor of Political Science at the University of Copenhagen, and a co-host on the Southeast Asian Studies channel. It's my great pleasure today to be joined by Supalak Ganchanakundi, who's the author of A Soldier King, Monarchy and Military in the Thailand of Rama 10, out from ISIS Publishing in 2022. Supalax, a former editor of the Nation newspaper and currently a visiting fellow at the Pridi Phnom Yong International College at Tamasat University. Supalak, welcome to the NBN Southeast Asian Studies channel. and hi to the audience. I'm happy to be here with you today. Great. So the topic of this new book is a really important one, the intimate connections between the military and the monarchy in Thailand. And unusually, this sensitive issue is not examined here through the lens of academic abstractions or generalizations. The cover of the book shows a young crown prince, Wachalongkorn, Thailand's current king, dressed in military uniform. A soldier king takes an unflinching look at King Rama X's military background, career and preoccupations. And it's going to be essential reading for all serious students of Thailand's politics. So like, let's start with how you wrote A Soldier King. Apart from the obvious secondary academic sources, you draw upon a number of interviews and primary language materials. How easy was it for you to obtain the evidence you needed for the arguments that you make in the book? Oh, it's, it's not easy at all. It's very difficult to get access into information. Very few people in Thailand, particularly military officer. We open the door to this kind of thing freely. So actually, I'm lucky to have some access to General Sonthi Bunjelakalin, who staked a coup to topple elected civilian government in the year 2006. And he happy to share with me about what happened during his coup and his idea behind the coup. That's very Excellent. And he knows I will write a book mm-hmm. in Singapore even because then I was visiting as uh, ISIS Singapore and I said, frankly, I need to talk about the role of a relation of the military with all kind of political still in Thailand. So he agreed and gave me some useful information. Another source is come from the Royal Guards. It's also lucky for me because it's uh, during the new reign there's a number of announcements, a number of law, a numbers of declaration that because this during that time is transition period, establishment of the new reign. So the government under General Payut Chai has the pockets a lot of things to document and to legalize it. So it's also whatever. So everything that come out in loyal case. The other side is come from because I'm a journalist. 
some source and among politicians, activists who pay more attention about this. And frankly speaking, I was inspired by a colleague who want me to review a kind of article by Ajahn Prachak Kong Kirote Ajahn Vilyut Kanchana Shusa. The two wrote an article on the Payut regime and their argument say that Payut regime and Payut coup want to exhibit something permanent regime, just mm-hmm. a temporary coup for like a smooth transition to the new reign, but they want to create something like a more permanent as a new regime that they argument. And Ajahn Pajak argument saying that militaries embed in a youth regime, but argue that military alone cannot sustain that regime. There is something bigger than military. So during that time, I said, try to ask a question, which one is bigger than military? So I found mm-hmm. that, oh, the crown is bigger than the military. And get back to General Sonti again, when I interview him, he said very frankly that Thai military has a prime duty is to protect the monarchy. So that's why I come up with this idea and I begin to figure out how the two institutions are connected and how they play the role. That's uh, how the books come out. Right. No, it's nice to know that your book sort of emerged from the evidence that you found and evolved during the course of your conversations and research towards this conclusion. And yet it importantly builds upon other arguments that people like Prajak have made about what was very distinctive about the 2014 coup and what kind of regime was emerging. There's quite a bit of history in your book. And I guess one of the most interesting historical questions in my mind is that we well know that King Wechelowood, Rama VI, he created considerable conflict more than a century ago when he established the Wild Tiger Corps and yes. thereby upset the existing military hierarchy. And, of course, King Wechelowood also was trained in a cadet school abroad. Some elements of his background are similar. Do you see any parallels between King Rama VI and Rama X? There is some commonality between the two kings. First of all, their name is very similar, right? Yes. Wachila Wood and Wachila Lankorn is something. Wachila. They are carping before being the king, similar to thing. Another thing to mention, both of them obtained military education from abroad. King Wachila Wood, King Rama Sikh, as we know, he graduated from UK, and King Wachila Lankorn graduated from Australia, Dantun. That's a cool to common thing. Another thing is I found that they, both of them, serve as military in national defense service. They then present themselves as a soldier who like to be a master of uh, military side. One more thing that I thought important that uh, both of them have what we call some kind of like uh, private army, as so the mm-hmm. royal private army. King Rama VI has been called Silpa as a role model for the military. He tried to prove and he tried to get respect from the rest of the men in the armed force that he is a talented military officer. He can command a unit, he can command armed force, even he has no experience in war. King Rama Ten has even bigger private army than King Rama Sikh. He has two regiments of combat readies in franchise into his direct command in 2019. The king includes the 1st and 11th infantry regiments 
into loyal secondary commands that under his command. So these two regiments has probably 6,000 or more troops within that. It's a lot more bigger. And they are well-trained. They are elites because they are, most of them are in the capital. The two regiments are what we call loyal guard, king guard actually, before, including so. Besides, he has another elite squad we call under the security course of 904 task force that comprise some more than a dozen of military officers, mostly from the army. In that, we will discuss this later because one is connected to what we call, or what you have already called this network monarchy. I found mm-hmm. that the king used this elite squad as his network to connect with the military. Another security concern unit is that they has police, like large one lob, large one lob police that's under the Central Investigation Bureau. This has some not so strong connection to the palace, but it's under Royal Thai police. The thing that the King Lama Ten has more than uh, the King Lama Sikhat, this kind of commonality that both of them have. And one thing is important. King Rama Ten loves to use large what this poem composed by King Rama Six. It's a kind of traditional rule of engagement or, or code of conduct for people working in the palace in particular. If we remember clearly, some people were punished because they violated the Rajasawat doctrine. In that. It's, it's like a rule for the palace the rule for the civil servants who work for the king, how to behave. King Ramatan used doctrine created by King Rama VI as his guide to run the military and civilians under his command. That's, I found, the similarity of the two kings. Right, yes. Now, there is this very interesting episode that you talk about a bit in the book that does also differentiate the two because as Crown Prince in 1976, Wachua did take part in combat operations against the Communist Party of Thailand. Can you talk a bit about that episode and why it's become invested with a great deal of significance latterly? It was promised actually after the king access to the throne. This thing happens when King then the Crown Prince Wachua Longkorn returned from Australia in 1976. He is in Thai because Ron Vicham and he tried to prove he's a soldier, right? So he was assigned by his parents, the king and the queen in Ramanais, Prince, uh, to visit Luimot area that is under communist threats in, in 70s that we all know about that. And at first, uh, the mission is to give moral support to the troops on the ground and villagers in that area, in the remote area and the sensitive area. When the king arrived there and commander on the ground, it was the 3rd Army Legion commander, I remember correctly, who responded and briefed the king that there's some crash in the area. And they sent crowd troops to reach the crash site, but they were ambushed by the communist insurgent. So when the king realized that, oh, this is still going on, so he wanted to visit the place, and he ordered the commander on the ground. He's just a captain. Then, but all the instruction to lieutenant generals, who is the commanders of the Third Army region, to prepare for him 
to go to that side. So the commander just tried to say, oh, we cannot go there because for your safety, you are the hell of the throne. So he, he insists that I want to go to fix the problem by myself now. So then mm. he took a helicopter, landed on the side. And the picture was released by the palace. I mean, it's taken by military and the king jumped out of the chopper and tried to take cover. And they says in the story that I found first time published in 1986 when the Jolo Chamkao Military Academy published a three-volume book to commemorate 100 years of that school and they talk about the activities of, of the crown prince. We know again when General Apirat highlights in his high-profile speech in 2019 October when he tried to promote the statues of the current king and his own position because he's uh, just uh, nearly taking a position as the army chief. So for me, that episode tells many stories in the sense that uh, he's talk about this in 2019. There's no longer communist, but he tried to promote the king as a brave soldier who encountered with the national enemy then. And more importantly, the king and the military went on war together, uh, shoulder to shoulder, fights against the communists. That what General uh, Pirat highlights to the public, to highlight the soldier of the king and to highlight the strong relation between the crowd and the armed force. Let me give a little more detail. When General Apirat highlight this, he created the national enemy. So look, he said that the current threat to the monarchy is a movement of the youth. He even that day during that lecture, he showed picture of uh, Joseph Wong and saying that this type of things happen in Hong Kong is similar to things that happen in Thailand when the youth and the young generation try to raise questions about the coup, about the role of the monarchy then. So that's guy is try to combine two things and highlight the roles of the king and the roles of the visit to jointly in hand in hand to fight against national enemy. That's our own citizen. I mean the US citizen. So that's why it's something in that way. Right. Yeah. Now, of course, that was a very interesting speech, especially in light of what started to happen just a few months later in terms of the youth-led protest that did raise those yeah. issues. But this yeah. also brings us back to the questions about the military coups. We've already mentioned the 2006 and 2014 military coups. Why do you think it is the case that the monarchy has consistently endorsed, or at least failed to oppose, most of the many coups. Thailand, I guess, currently holds the world record for military coups over the past 50 or 100 years. Why has the monarchy somehow been implicated in this business of the regular staging of military coups? Let me quote General Sonti, who I interviewed for the book. He said, "Thai military has four duties." It has so many duties mm-hmm. more than many other armed forces in this region, right? Yes. Uh, Indonesia, TNI has only the V function. I mean, only two functions, mm-hmm. but Thai military has four functions. First and foremost is to protect the crown, to protect the monarchy. Second is national defense. That's normal, right? Many other armed forces do the same thing. And the third one is to maintain internal security. That internal security these days seem like. Uh, It's a threat to the monarchy, so that's why. 
And the last one is to help the government to disaster relief or whatsoever. But it's come to me clearly, General Sonti has said that under Turkish government, Thailand has facing internal threats from people who surrounding Taksim. He says clearly, there are ex-communist insurgents. Look, he said about communists again, right? And surrounding Taksim, there are two groups of people. One who want democracy with the king at the head of state. But the other group is kind of like a dangerous to national security. It's a group who never give up their communist ideology. They want to turn Thailand into a kind of republic without the king. So that's why General Sonti said he never trusts these second groups of people who are working for Taksin then. So the coup for me has an impression that some like to get rid of Taksin for sure. And his communication all the time with people in the palace or working for the palace all the time. I mean, General Sonti, he is a special force. He has a strong connection with General Suryus. And General Suryus has a strong connection because he came the residence under General Prem. So it sounds to me like General Sonti was picked up. He didn't say clearly, but it seemed to me that I haven't had to ask him why you happen to be an army chief while the other is around by... Because before him is General Bawit, right? Mm-hmm. General Bawit is a Burapapayak. He is not special force. So by tradition, he will pick up his trustmen to you, your successor, right? This is a tradition of military for having successor as your favorite to become from the same faction. So General Sonti was picked up by General Pem for sure. And he has the General Surajus as his mentor. All the time. So I feel the like connection. He was picked up to secure the throne for sure. And the second coup for me is very clear that he wants to continue the work that General Sonti cannot make it to get rid of Taksin and to keep General Pak Thai or Chinavata clans away when we are in transition period from mm-hmm. King Rama 9 yes. to King Rama 10. So they don't want to see politicians in the position, in power, when they are in critical period like that. So I feel that the second coup is something like Thai to secure because the first coup cannot make the thing done. Right. Yes, absolutely. So in the book, you discuss how the monarchy became more militarized and the military became more monarchized, as it were, since King Wetelongkorn ascended to the throne in 2016. How has this process taken place, this greater emphasis on militarization from the perspective of the monarchy? First of all, as I already mentioned, as the king presents himself as a soldier, as a military. Second thing, he did pick up the commanders by himself. We have now, we call another groups of military officers working in the key position we call the Red Rim. Red Rim means members of 904 task force. This 904 task force is created by the king. So the king has a very strong connection directly to the armed force through these groups of military officers. Another thing that we all know that the king loves to have his surrounding people as a soldier. So we have the queen as a soldier. We have the loyal consort as soldier. Daughters of the king are soldiers. So everybody who works for the king to be soldier 
King has many people. He has grand ranks. He has grand position in the military to the people. So in this sense, I feel that the king turned everything surrounding it as a military affair, and he connects to the armed force through the number of people that he trusts, members of his officials are military. So. In this sense, I felt that the king militarized everybody around him and had a strong connection through the armed force to a number of people that we can call in your term, perhaps this is a new network of monarchy, mm-hmm. new monarchy network from my point of view. Right, yeah. I mean, there is a counter-argument, or perhaps it's an argument that's not incompatible with yours, that the king in some respects doesn't seem entirely to trust the military, which is why he's place so much emphasis on personal loyalty and creating these own guard units, or even that he holds the Royal Thai Army responsible for ending the absolute monarchy in 1932. And for that reason, he's been quite keen to kick them out of some of their privileged positions, like the former Nanglung race course or the prime locations that they enjoy in the heart of Bangkok. And he's been trying to shift them out to the provinces. And this all suggests, actually, that he doesn't trust a lot of people in the military. What do you think about that? Argument. I think he never trusts uh, the men who hold devote weapons surrounding him. As well. So that's why he picked up his commander by himself. He has his own private army. I think it's really show that he never used any proxy to connect between himself and the armed force. So that's why I think we had that indicate that he trusts nobody surrounding him, his own people to check his behavior. Even people in the government, I feel that some people who have influence over the military recently, like uh, is under influence of Bulapa Payak, Eastern Tiger, right? Mm-hmm. General Payut, General Pawit, General Anupong, they are members of, of him. So now we have a new set of military officers who has a very strong connection to the king, like we call the Red Rim, or we call the Han Kordang in Thai. This is a new faction in Thai Armed Force. Previously, we have Wong Taewan, I mean people mm-hmm. who served in the first division in the capital. All Wong Taewan is now under the Red Rim because uh, two regiments, two uh, regiments is under the king are all Wong Taewan. So Wong Taewan is the real Wong Taewan now because they are under the king. So we have seen no long Burapapayak or Eastern Cycle in the key position, and we see less influence of General Pravit and General Payut over the military. Now, the reshuffle in the military is directly to people who call the Red Rim uh, soldier, and the Red Rim soldier has reported to the king directly. So this is the fact that there is no threat at all to the armed force. Right. I mean, there is a point in your book when you say... You know, Tyler may be in the process of reverting to absolute monarchy, although you say at least in areas under palace jurisdiction. I guess that's a huge and very important claim. How serious are you about talking about a reversion to absolute monarchy? And then the other part of your sentence, what areas do you think are covered by palace jurisdiction? Are you suggesting that civilian well, rule and, yes. and the parliament, do you think civilian rule and parliamentary government are just a kind no, of a no, facade because... or they still have significant power? Let me put it that way. When General Bayut took power and he rearranged the relation between the palace, with the armed force and with the government, he creates a royal office in particular and have have an other law issue and other law to legalize this relation and king's power within the palace jurisdiction. Now the king has 30 
thousands people under his direct rule. And you don't. We have some kind. Of, we see the loyal caste announce promotion, demotion, punishment, but refer to nothing. Why these people were promoted? Why the people were get promotion? Why people did demote? And why the people were punished? Like the case of I cannot go in detail. The noble consort, right? Right. She was promoted. She was demoted. She was missing. Right. Sometimes disappear from public. There's a rumor somehow she was punished, and many people was punished. People people disappear from public. This kind of thing that he used different system from the rest outside the palace. Mm-hmm. So that's why I said this is kind of like a virtual absolute monarchy that's mm-hmm. taking place at least within the jurisdiction of the palace. We cannot have. Any kind of law access into that operation under the king command. We don't know how the shuffle took place within the two regiments. So you recruit a thousand of troops within your command. You don't know how to promote them, and what happened if they did something wrong? What happened if they commit crime, for example? Whether this man will be punished under the law or under the rules of the palace? And the king, as I've said before, he used what we call lachas as a what? Lachas a what? Something like a code of conduct. Sometimes he referred to lachas a what for the punish- punishment. I think this is the kind of thing that is operates outside the context of the law. And one thing that I try to say when the current constitution came into force, they has to pass through the referendum, right? Right. And after referendum, and then the producer submitted to king for endorsement. And the king made some observation and to change some course within the constitution. And later, General Bajus has amend his own constitution that's already passed the referendum, according with the king observation. Everything is appropriate. How can the king order to change the constitution that's already passed? Okay, I think this is kind of absolute monarchy. This gives the sense of absolute monarchy for sure. This is the why I say this is a virtual absolute monarchy happened at least in the jurisdiction of the palace. Yes, I mean, there's clearly an awful lot uh, more to analyze and discuss, and a great deal more that could be researched on that important question. But it is one that, that's very really sure, flagged okay, up. If, if, in you, your if book. you do this, <laughs> yes. <laughs> What do you think are the future prospects for relations between the military and the monarchy, including even beyond the tenth reign? Because in the 2020 youth protests, we saw people coming out openly calling for monarchical reform, which was something that hadn't happened in Thailand before. And it does seem that a lot of the younger generation, a generation Z or, or Z or whatever we want to call them in Thailand, are quite alienated from traditional values and institutions, including the military and the monarchy. So how can this go forward 10, 20, 30 years from now? Where will we be? Thank you for this question. I'm thinking this for some time. I am now engaged with another project for military reform, and I realize that it is really difficult to reform the military under this circumstance. So given that the monarchy and the, the armed force is very strong connection, and as a general appellate in inseparable part to mm-hmm. one another, so it's really when we talk about the military reform, we refer to an idea proposed by hunting times or civilian yes. supremacy or civilian control. In a sense, we have to have a parliament to control the armed force. Mm-hmm. The armed force has to serve the government 
but Thai armed force refuse to serve the government. Right. Whatever, because if they don't like that government, they will serve. But for sure, they have to serve the crowd all the time. No question about this. So in that sense, it's really difficult to reform the military without the reform of the monarchy. I try to look at the how the role of the parliament to command the military in this sense. They cannot command the military. The, the elected government cannot command the military. So the military is subject to the crowd all the time. They listen to the king, not to the government, not to the prime minister. So I think this is the kind of like diminishing of Thai democracy in a sense. If you cannot make clear with the functions of the monarchy, of the military. I feel a bit worrisome when a young generation call for this reform in both military and the monarchy. I think Thailand come into confrontation again, tension when the military see our citizens, our national fellows, our young people, our students as a national enemy who try to topple the monarchy. So Thai societies come into that confrontation. I mean, it's really serious thing that we have to look into. How to sit together and talk peacefully. How can we move our democracy in the way that we can avoid violence, confrontation, or the kind when the two institutions in Thai politics has a clear that has a clear view that there are some people want to topple them. That's very dangerous for Thai society, in my opinion. Right. And I guess that the related problem, and this is where a book like yours is very important, is that many people feel there has been much less space for these kind of difficult political discussions in recent years at a time when there's so much demand for the discussions, especially from younger people. It's become harder and harder to have even academic conversations, let alone policy conversations or discussions with politicians about these difficult issues. Even if we don't touch the monarchy at all and want to talk about military reform, the military became very, very defensive about having those kinds of open debates. I think even among Thai friends, we are refrained from thinking that I think in public, so I've been happy to talk to you in English, although my English is very bad I mean, in talking in that way. No, I mean, your English is highly communicative and very much to the point here. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Super like for joining us on the New Books Network to discuss your fascinating new book on the military monarchical nexus in Thailand. I think this book is going to help stimulate a lot of further reflection and discussion about this incredibly important topic. Okay, thank you very much, Ajahn, for having me this session. I love to, and perhaps we can encourage other people to have some more discussion. And for yourself also, we are experts on Thailand affairs, so... You will pay more attention and develop the things that under new network monarchy that I think we are looking for. How we operate under this circumstance, under this dreams, uh, the new ring, I mean. Well, thanks very much for that encouragement from you. I'm Duncan McCargo, Director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies at the University of Copenhagen. And I've been talking to Supalak Ganchanakundi, who's the author of A Soldier King. Monarchy and Military 
in the Thailand of Rama 10, out from ISIS Publishing in 2022. You've been listening to the New Books Network Southeast Asian Studies Channel.